We'd like to thank Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for helping to underwrite the Building Through Him podcast. In the last year alone, Notre Dame FCU served more than 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. Learn more at NotreDameFCU.com. Hello, welcome to the Building Through Him podcast. I'm Mary Jo Parrish. I'm the founder of Kingdom Builders, and today's episode is Won't You Be My Neighbor? And just so you know, you are always loved and always welcome here. So we always like to start off with some funny stories because the Lord loves to hear us laugh, right? So my son Joseph was demanding a screen while he ate his breakfast, and I am not a morning person So I don't like to fight with the kids in the morning, and normally I would probably just let them have a screen to watch the show, but I was feeling a little bit more energetic this morning, and I said, you know, you don't actually need a screen today. You don't need a screen to eat your cereal. When I was your age, I didn't have a screen when I ate my cereal. And then he said, what did you look at while you ate? And I thought to myself, what did I look at? Well, you know what we looked at, right? The back of a cereal box. So I told him. We looked at the back of the cereal box, all proud and, you know, happy. And he said, that sounds terrible. He was not impressed with the back of the cereal box. No way, shape, or form. There's some advantages to certain types of breakfast. So one thing I found, especially having a lot of little girls, is that if they ate any type of product that needed syrup, so waffles or pancakes or French toast or whatever, I really had to put styling product on their hair. I would just spray the syrupy hair with water and dilute it nicely with that leftover breakfast syrup and like brush it out. And then when I put it into like a nice ponytail, it would have like this really strong sugary crisp and stay in the exact position I would desire. Of course, they totally need a shower once they get home from school, but it looked really cute that morning. So I've just decided that mornings are tough, right? I'm not a morning person. If you are, praise God, right? But when you're raising kids in my house, you can either have a good morning or you can get the kids to school on time. But there's no room for both, right? There's no room for both. There's the phrase, early bird gets the worm. And both my parents grew up on farms. And so that was a phrase that I heard, early bird gets the worm. And I'm just going to say, like, the late bird gets a slightly worse worm, okay? There's lots of worms, and we should not let the worm choice control our sleeping habits, okay? We need to just live our lives as we're supposed to live our lives. And, like, Daniel slept in a lion's den, right? Peter slept in a prison. Jesus slept in a storm. So no matter where we're at, even if we have to get up early and deal with all the kids and all this stuff, it's acceptable to take naps. Amen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon his handmaid's lowliness. Behold, from now on, all ages will call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. He has shown might with his arm, dispersed the arrogant of mind and heart. He has thrown down the rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the lowly. The hunger he has filled with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel his servant, remembering his mercy, according to his promise, to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Amen. So in Kingdom Builders, we always talk about our foundation first. 
We pray for a minimum of 10 minutes a day. We go to church on Sundays, and we stay in a state of grace. So we are avoiding any type of serious sin, especially. So minimum 10 minutes of prayer, church on Sundays, stay in a state of grace. That is our foundation. And then we build ourselves in other ways. We build others and we build the church, but we never, ever neglect our foundation. So another thing we talk about is the crown jewel strategy, that we're asking the Holy Spirit to be a part of our plan, right? On Sundays, it really works well on Sundays because it's a day of rest and planning. We plan our week. Then we do the plan. And then the next, the following Sunday, we reflect on that. How did that go? Where did I have decreased peace and joy, increased peace and joy? And then we adjust it for each week. We allow the Holy Spirit in on our planning, and then we're recognizing where he is at during the week so that we are more docile to his will. And this will increase not just our effectiveness in the work in the week and able to get stuff done, but actually increases our peace and joy because we are doing his will. So today we're talking about, won't you be my neighbor? So God made human beings to worship. Since the beginning of human existence, every civilization has worshiped. And if we don't worship God, we'll worship something else. We worship Jesus in many ways, right? We worship by praising God's name. So Psalms 8.1, O oh Lord our God, how wonderful your name in all the earth, right? Because God's name has incredible power. We worship by praising God and his different titles or the things that he has done. This is Genesis 14. Blessed be Abram, by God most high, the creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your foes into your hands. And we implore others to worship with us, right? We encourage others to worship with us. Psalm 66, 1, let all the earth cry out to joy, God with joy. Let all the earth cry out to God with joy. Why? God knows he's God, right? So why do we worship? He knows his titles. He knows what he's done. God doesn't need our praise and worship. He doesn't need it. So if God doesn't need our praise and worship, yet we recognize we're created for it, then that must mean that the worship is actually about us. Hmm. So why would that be? Why do we worship? We know that we're created and his image and likeness, right? We're created in the image and likeness of God. So when we worship, it edifies that. It strengthens our identity in God. Because we cannot know who we are until we know whose we are. We can't. We cannot know who we are until we know whose we are. That's who our identity is in. And we know that if we don't worship God, we'll worship something else. We're going to naturally imitate that which we worship. We will. Someone said to me one time, be careful you're not worshiping at the throne of Netflix. I was like, oh, that was a good one. I was like, okay, yep, I'd reevaluate some things in my life. So we're naturally going to imitate that which we worship. And every other form of worship leads to bondage. It does. So when society worships self-indulgence or self-ingrandizement or self-centeredness, that only creates slaves, right? And so what does the church say about this? So Catholic Church has this thing called the catechism. So you often see it, it quoted as CCC and then like a little number sign, and then it has this number. That means the paragraph within the catechism. So this is what the Catholic Church says. The worship of the one God sets man free from turning in on himself 
from the slavery of sin and the idolatry of the world. So when we worship God, it sets us free from turning in on ourselves and worshiping sin or the idolatry of the world. It changes us from egocentric, self-centered, to theocentric, God-centered. And it allows us to trust in the goodness of God. Worship unites our will to God's will. Because we don't say, your kingdom come, my will be done, right? We don't say that. Because all of our human effort and planning is a complete waste of energy unless we're first asking the creator of the universe, what do you want? That's why we talk about the crown jewel strategy all the time. We first start off our week saying, what do you want? Okay, because that's what I want to do, because God will only lead us to that which brings us the most peace and joy. So guess what? I want to do what he wants, okay, because he's a good father, and I trust him. So worship allows us to trust and surrender all to him, especially our struggles, because when we're in those struggles, when we give those over to him, we know the Lord battles for us, so we can just actually rest and let him battle. Second Chronicles 2020 the battle belongs to the Lord. No, it belongs to him. Let him battle. You just sit back, rest, and pray. So we come to know God's love, joy, and goodness through worship. We unite our will to God's will in worship, and we surrender all to the Lord in worship. And when that love is lavished upon us through worship, it naturally overflows into love of neighbor. Because worship is actually not just meant as a gift for us. It's a gift meant to be shared. You know, it's not just for us. It's meant to be shared. The Lord wants us to share that. This is Luke 10, 25 through 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So that whole last part, like love God with all of who you are and your neighbor as yourself, right? So it's not just the first part, it's the second part also. So, you know, we're talking about screens in the beginning and little kids watching screens or whatever. I bet some of you watched Mr. Rogers while eating your cereal. Yeah? I watched Mr. Rogers. I loved him. I loved Mr. Rogers. I love the peacefulness that he brought. And the song that they would sing in, he would sing in the beginning as he was like, you know, changing his sweater and his shoes. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Won't you be mine? You know, I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So you remember the song, right? Does it bring back like a happy memory for me? It's like, oh, I love that. It makes me feel happy inside. I recently saw a meme with a coffee cup and it said, Mr. Rogers did not adequately prepare me for the people in my neighborhood. And it's kind of true, right? So it's like, oh, everybody wants to be a good neighbor, right? It's so wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because God's goodness and love overflows within us through worship. Yep. And that leads us into action. But that action isn't always easy, right? So usually the most unloving people are the ones who need the most love. So what did Jesus say about this? Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Does that sound familiar? Okay, so we're going to read that. But first, before we read it, we're going to set the stage. 
So we know the victim is traveling from Jericho, sorry, from Jerusalem to Jericho, okay? In this, this steep decline of 3,300 feet over 17 miles. So it's like kind of dangerous, okay? So he's doing this dangerous trip into Jericho. We know he's attacked, stripped, and beaten to the point of almost dying. So when you beat somebody to almost dying, that's severe beating, okay? Also stripped, you know, like, let's just not have, like, give him any dignity or humanity. So we know that's what happens. Who are the characters in the story? So we have a Jewish priest. This would be a very highly respected Jewish temple official, okay? So that's a Jewish priest. And then we have a Levite. So Levite, the word comes from Levi, and they were the ones responsible for the temple, so of the tribe of Levi. So this, this Levite is like one step down from a priest, but also very respected. And then we have the Good Samaritan. He's not respected at all, okay? Great animosity between Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews looked down on them. They were like, the Samaritans were gross. They interbred with the Gentiles. They were seen like half-breeds. They were super, super prejudiced against the Samaritans. There's also all these ethnic tensions and religious rifts. It was hard. The Samaritans were very, very not liked by the Jews. So this Jewish man asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay. So Jesus, because he's sassy, and I love his sassiness. Like, I'm like, I don't we all need a little more Jesus sass in our life? Oh, so good. So this is more like a... Uh, prideful Jewish guy, you know, is talking to Jesus about how he's doing so many good things. And then he says, now who is my neighbor, really? You know, and Jesus replied, a man fell victim to robbers as he went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They stripped and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, but when he saw him, he passed by on the opposite side. Likewise, a Levite came to the place, and when he saw him, he passed by the opposite side. But a Samaritan traveler who came upon him was moved with compassion at the sight. He approached the victim, poured oil and wine over his wounds, and bandaged them. Then he lifted him up on his own animal, took him to an inn, and cared for him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper with the instructions, take care of him. If you spend more than what I have given you, I shall repay you on my way back. Which of these three, in your opinion, was neighbor to the robber's victim? So this Jewish guy is like thinking, hmm, what am I going to say? He answered, the one who treated him with mercy. He couldn't even say Samaritan. He couldn't. He couldn't even say the word. He just says, the one who treated him with mercy. And Jesus replies, go and do likewise. Oh, that's some Jesus sass. Love it. Quit being prideful. Go and take care of your neighbor. So the first two, the priest and the Levite, knew the law, right? They knew it. They taught it, right? But they didn't fulfill the obligation to love thy neighbor because loving thy neighbor was messy, bloody, and uncomfortable. And if they would have actually touched that blood, they would have been banned from going in the temple for a certain amount of days for a cleansing period or whatever. It was uncomfortable. It was, you know, not part of their plan, okay? The Samaritan 
was moved with compassion. So even though his race and religion were unwelcome, he's the only one who acts with mercy and embraces the title of neighbor. And sometimes we too, like the Good Samaritan, are moved with compassion. Our sorrow becomes a stimulant to our imagination, and our brains start coming alive with ideas to help alleviate suffering. We move past that fear of becoming tainted with the contact of human misery, and something inside us ignites. It's like that Holy Spirit, activate. So I don't know if any of you know Nathaniel Hawthorne. He is the author of The Scarlet Letter, and he is wealthy. He's an English gentleman, and he was acutely aware of germs. You'd probably call him today a germaphobe. Okay, so he writes in his diary about a time when he went to visit a Liverpool workhouse, and this is his account. After this, we went to the ward where the children were kept, and on entering this, we saw in the first place two or three unlovely and unwholesome little imps. One of them, a child about six years old, but I know not whether a girl or boy, immediately took the strangest fancy for me. It was a wretched, pale little little one with a humor in its eye, which the governor said was scurvy. I never saw a child that I should feel less inclined to hold. But this little, sickly, humor-eaten fright prowled around me, taking hold of me, following at my heels, and at last held up its hands, smiled in my face, and standing directly before me, insisted on my taking it up. Its face expressed such perfect confidence that I was going to be taken up, that it was going to be taken up and made much of, that it was impossible for me not to do it. It was as if God had promised this child this favor on my behalf and that I must fulfill the contract. I held my undesirable burden a little while, and after setting the child down, it still followed me, holding two of my fingers and playing with them, just as if it were a child of my own. It was a foundling, and out of all humankind, it chose me. I should have never forgiven myself if I had repelled its advances. So this Englishman, very wealthy, very well-to-do, well-known author, holds this child, even though he's in a germaphobe, he has this one act of charity that he gives. And his daughter, Rose Hawthorne, said that those were the greatest words ever written by her father that that one small act of charity impacted her so deeply, and it actually ends up changing the course of history. One act of charity. So tell me about this Rose Hawthorne. You know, she lives this wealthy, idyllic lifestyle, but both of her parents died by the time she was 13. She ends up marrying a man at 20 who is an alcoholic. They have a son together, and the son dies at five. And she is so depressed beyond words. She has this deep sadness, and it led her on this spiritual search, and she eventually finds Catholicism. And then she has another turning point in her life when she reads a story in the paper of a young seamstress of some means, so she's kind of wealthy, 
and she has cancer and she's operated on over and over. And this woman spends all her money, ends up destitute and still has cancer. And she's confined to the squalid shelter for cancer patients. And the story broke Rose's heart. And she got down on her knees in that moment and just asked God to allow her to do something to help people like these. Rose had that compassion for her neighbor's suffering that led her to God and that her will, united to God, brought forth his glory. So she enrolls herself in this nursing school and begins work at a hospital immediately upon graduation in cancer victim with cancer victims. And so on her first day, she meets this lady named Mary Watson. And this lady had an advanced case of facial cancer. And it she was incredibly physically repulsive. Like even the doctors and nurses like couldn't handle caring for her. They recoiled at her because she looked so disgusting. And Rose didn't mind. Her and this Mary Watson became friends. Rose eventually left her husband, who was drinking so badly at that point in time, and she rented a small apartment in Manhattan. And then when they discharged Mary, she had no place to go. So she Rose took in Mary, and eventually she starts opening her doors to all these other cancer patients who have nowhere else to go, and she cares for them. And guess what happens? People start seeing what she's doing, and they get excited about it, and they want to help with the cause, right? So she gets all these volunteers, people embracing God's work with the spirit of joy. It brings about more more spirit of joy and more people. It's magnetism. So then when her husband dies, she actually enters the Dominican order and continues her work. She eventually establishes a whole nother hospital and a new branch of the Dominican order called the Hawthorne Dominicans, and they still exist today, caring for those with incurable cancer. So Rose Hawthorne is credited with being the founder of hospice care. And when she died in 1926, the story of her life was published in the New York newspaper. And guess what happens? There's this girl named Dorothy Day She's like this young intellectual, and she's seeking something deeper. And when she reads the story of Rose Hawthorne, she is moved to radical love. She Founding ends up the Catholic Workers' Movement. It's this organization dedicated to intertwining the love of God with the love of the poor, the hungry, the ignorant, the margins of society. Dorothy Day is, is one of my like greatest spiritual mentors. She is amazing. Her writing is amazing. The way she loves God's people is amazing. She is a huge inspiration to me to think that Nathaniel that inspired his daughter, Rose, who inspired Dorothy Day, and years later, you know, Dorothy's inspired many people, but also me, to see how the fire of God's charity is spread is incredibly humbling. Because the thing about charity is that charity begets charity begets charity. When we give of ourselves— Others are inspired to do the same. And that fire of God's love, that's what charity is. It's the fire of God's love. It cannot be contained. This is Luke 10 2. The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. And that statement, Jesus is saying right there, won't you be mine? 
Will you become a laborer from my harvest? He's asking us to love our neighbor. He's asking us to be present to those around us. What does Mr. Rogers have to say? So this is a Mr. Rogers quote. All of us, at some time or other, need help. Whether we're giving or receiving help, each one of us has something valuable to bring to this world. That's one of the things that connects us as neighbors in our own way. Each one of us is a giver and a receiver. I love that. So let's say we we like, oh, I want to do this charity. Like, I, I want to do something, okay? All of us are called to do something, all of us. So how do we know what acts of charity we should be doing? Who and what our hearts break for, that's part of our unique design. And that may lead us to our calling, okay? So think about what bothers you most in this world? Like, who does your heart break for? Who within you, like when the scripture says mood with compassion, it actually, if you translate that literally, it says like, their bowels were twisted. I mean, it's something like they're deeply moved by compassion. Who does your heart break for? Who does your heart break for? God may be calling you exactly there. And then whatever gifts and talents and abilities he's designed you with is how he intends for you to create change. We don't wait for the perfect time or opportunity or the perfect neighbor. We don't do that. One of my favorite podcasts is At the Table. It's Pat Lincioni. One of his quotes is, There are often more consequences from indecision than making the wrong decision. So more consequences from not making a decision than making a decision that's wrong. So a lot of times we're like, well, maybe we should do this. And maybe we should do this. And, maybe we should. and then we end up doing nothing because we are in that process of indecision. The Lord wants us to do something, Right according to what our heart breaks for, according to our gifts and talents. We're called to do something. We're not going to stay in that path of indecision because actually that's just the enemy holding us there. He doesn't want us to have that fire of charity. He doesn't. So we know that that charity is often inconvenient, right? I'm sure that there were mornings where Rose Hawthorne didn't really feel like taking care of cancer patients. You know, she maybe didn't feel like it or having them in her house. It's often inconvenient. It's almost always not a part of our plan. It isn't. Usually it's like some something that surprises us. Someone says something or, hey, we need a volunteer for this. Or, you know, we see someone struggling over here. Sometimes it's really hard, okay? And so you have to recognize you're naturally going to want to avoid something that looks like more work. You will. You'll naturally want to avoid that. And we also recognize that when we're doing it, we can feel like we're doing it really bad or like we're totally unqualified or we just totally want to quit. But the power is actually in our presence. It's being there, okay? And at least trying. That's the power. Even if we do it badly, the fire charity still inflames within us, okay? So when I first began teaching religion in middle school, I had totally unreasonable expectations for myself and my students. And I seriously struggled with perfectionism. It's not, I didn't know how to renounce anything back then. Otherwise, I would have renounced it. But I was 100% certain that I was a terrible teacher. And I just decided, I remember telling my husband, hey, I must have discerned wrong because I, my vocation is certainly not as a teacher. I am not meant to teach. 
I must have not heard him correctly. And that was kind of depressing. Honestly, I spent so much time and energy doing all these theology classes. And I just was like, I'm bad at this. And these kids don't care. And some of those kids were just really rude. So we know like the most unloving people usually need the most love, right? And so they didn't want to learn about God. And that kind of hurt my feelings. And I just end up telling the principal I was not returning, that I was not meant to be a teacher. So sorry, blah, blah, blah. And as I continued praying that summer about my failed vocation, God slowly unveiled to me the hearts of my students. And he reminded me that kids who need love the most will show it in the most unloving ways. And my heart began to break for them. And that sorrow that I felt for each of them became like the stimulant to my imagination. And my brain became alive with these ideas to alleviate their suffering. And he started like giving me ideas because we know the Holy Spirit's super creative. So he gave me ideas. He started showing me like little things that would be helping, helpful in my teaching, analogies. I'm all about analogies, life application tools, little stories. He even like put, <laughs> so, so silly, but gave me ways to arrange my classroom that would prevent the like partying that I felt like was going on to help me keep control of my class. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like I started thinking of all these things. And I was, then I started taking notes and then I started creating lesson plans. I was like, what are you doing? You're not going back. You'd already told the principal. And then I just couldn't help it. I had to call up my principal and I just said, hey, I, th- I think I'm supposed to come back. Have you hired anyone for my job yet? And uh, she started bawling. She was like, no, it's brain. You would come back. And when I became, when I started teaching the following year, it was completely different there's still difficult days or it's always going to be difficult days regardless of where we're at or what we're doing, but especially when we're a teacher, right? You have all these kids with all these different mood swings, especially in middle school. But these kids longed for God and I was able to see their longing. And he gave me the ability to teach to their broken hearts and to reveal to them the depths of his love. He allowed me to change my perspective of what I was doing. It wasn't about, you know, their you know, ability to memorize all the Ten Commandments and all the Beatitudes and blah, blah, blah. Like, it was about, like, he wanted to infuse in them the depth of his love. And I got it. I was like, oh, that's what you want to do. I was putting myself and my perfectionism in what I wanted in place of what God wanted. The funny thing is, is that when we're looking at what God wants us to do, it's a paradox. Because even if what God's calling us to do ends up being more work, the work invigorates us because it unites us to God. So charity is literally living out the paradox of the cross. That which we would think would bring about death, the cross, is the exact thing that brings about life. This is from St. Catherine of Siena. Charity is the sweet and holy bond, which links the soul with its creator. It binds God with man and man with God. So we know that the greatest outpouring of graces take place in the sacraments, but there can also be other signals as well along our way of deciding, like, what's the Lord leading us to? We call these signal graces. So there are 15 promises in the rosary, and the first one is, Whoever shall faithfully serve me by the recitation, 
Whoever shall faithfully serve me by reciting the rosary shall receive signal graces. So what are signal graces? I want some, right? Signal graces are the reminders of God's presence in our surrounding. It's directing or confirming God's will in our life. So it means like when we're becoming like Christ, we're becoming fully present. We're aware of the signal graces that lead us to the people most in need. And we know that when we're present, those people that we encounter are not just some random strangers. That is our neighbor. That's our neighbor. This is from Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you were called for freedom. Serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, going back to neighbor. Bible's really clear about that, huh? The freedom that Paul is talking about, you were called for freedom, is to perform good works that are pleasing to God simply because we love him, right? God doesn't love us more if we do good works. He doesn't. The gifts of his love, totally free, totally free. We don't earn God's love, right? We're his sons and daughters. It's constant. But his love is fuel when we serve one another through it. That's that fire of charity. So, you know, his love's free. He doesn't love us more. We don't have to prove our worthiness by, you know, you know, spending endless hours volunteering. It's like, no, no, no. It's the opposite. When we just receive his love and it overflows within us, that's what fuels us to care for neighbor. We don't care for neighbor to make us worthy of receiving the love. It's the opposite. We receive the love to care for the neighbor. So if anyone has ever felt like dry in their spiritual life, like, oh my goodness, I do not feel the Lord's presence. I feel like I'm in a desert right now. A lot of times when we're going through like a drought, a spiritual drought, it's because we're hungering for him. We're seeking him. We're praying. But the Holy Spirit longs to be inflamed with the fire of charity. It longs to be inflamed, and we're sensing that drought, that longing to be inflamed. So has anyone ever done an act of charity? Have you like brought a meal to a new mom or worked in a soup kitchen or cleaned a sick friend's bath bathroom? Like after you do a work of charity, how do you feel? Good or bad? Right? Good. It feels good, right? This is the fire of God's love. It feels good because you're experiencing his charity. It ignites us. So whenever we're in that desert period, we're like, man, I'm not feeling God's love. It's really dry. Just say, where's my charity at? You know, I need to feel his love. And then it needs to be overflowing and leading me to love of neighbor. That charity, it burns within us when we give of ourselves. We're wired for fire. We're wired for fire. And it's incredibly powerful. So a time when someone showed me charity is when I were financially struggling in 2008, raising a bunch of kids and, you know, along with the rest of the world when gas was super expensive and everything else like it is now, we found out that one of our vehicles was going to die and we did not have the money for our car payment. We did not have the money for a new car and we had actually had no idea what we were going to do. So we started praying and I'm not going to lie, I was freaking out. And then this guy from my husband's work, he knew my husband, not super well, but he knew how many kids we were raising, and he probably could guess our financial struggle. He didn't know anything about one of our vehicles being broke, but God gave him a signal grace. 
And I remember exactly where I was sitting when my husband called me. As before texting was a thing. You actually had to call people regardless of where they were at. He calls me and I'm in the bleachers watching one of my kids' tournaments. I'm surrounded by a bunch of little kids. They're like climbing all over me, being loud, wanting to buy more candy. It was like, no. And I answer. I'm like, hello. And he said, Mary Jo, you're not going to believe this. So-and-so at work, he just gave us his old minivan. I was like, what? Who gives someone a car? Who does that, right? It was old and it was rusted, but it worked. I didn't care. So this man had just bought a new vehicle and he thought about selling his old minivan, but he just kept getting the thought he was supposed to give it to Bill, my husband. And that man's heart broke for a family who's financially struggling to raise a bunch of kids. And that family was ours. I think of it as like our prayer being like a fragrance lifted to God in worship. And that God heard that and then sent this man to give us this vehicle. That man acted on that signal grace. And his charity, the fire of God's love, was the answer to our prayer. We used that minivan for two years, gave it to another family in need. They used it for a few years, passed on another family in need. The last time I checked, we've lost track of it now, but it had over 300,000 miles. It's charity begets charity begets charity. It must be like a vehicle given in charity begets more and more and more and more miles. I don't know. Luke 10, 25, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. St. John Henry Newman has this prayer called the fragrance prayer. And we know that God desires us to honor all of our unique design with his love to fuel it. And this prayer just perfectly embraces everything we've talked about. Dear Jesus, help me to spread your fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that my life may only be a radiance of yours. Shine through me and be so in me that every soul I come in contact with may feel your presence in my soul. Let them look up and see no longer me, but only Jesus. Stay with me, and then I should begin to shine as you shine. So to shine is to be a light to others. The light, O Jesus, will be all from you. None of it will be mine. It will be you, shining on others through me. Let me thus praise you the way you love best, by shining on those around me. Let me preach you without preaching, not by words, but with my example by the catching force of the sympathetic influence of what I do, the evident fullness of the love my heart bears to you. Amen. See, that self-giving love of God allows our life to be a living response to the prayers of our brothers and sisters on earth. So when one of his children call out to him in prayer asking for a vehicle, Another child hears that call and provides a vehicle to answer that prayer request. It doesn't have to be something big like a car, right? Nathan Hawthorne picked up a dirty child, which influenced his daughter, which influenced Dorothy Day, who influenced so many, including me. Even one small act of charity can completely change the world. And we are being called to participate and partake in the divine nature of God 
Like, what an honor that is. He's inviting us to partake in his nature. So when we hear the last words of, won't you be my neighbor, right? Won't you be my neighbor, right? It's not really Mr. Rogers singing it. It's not just a neighbor in need singing it. It's not a little girl in a workhouse singing it. It's Christ himself serenading us with an invitation. He's asking us to be his living fragrance on this earth. Won't you please, please won't you please, please won't you be my neighbor? This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.